Welcome to the Mind Your OT Business Podcast, where we empower and equip occupational therapy practitioners and others to be savvy and successful entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Laura Park Figueroa. Besides burying my business soul on this podcast, I'm the founder and CEO of Outdoor Kids OT. I'm the creator of the Contigo approach to nature-based pediatric therapy and a business coach for pediatric therapists who want to start and grow profitable nature-based businesses. While I clearly love nature and my niche is nature-based practice, this podcast is all about what it takes to grow a successful business as a helping professional, no matter where you work. The business principles are the same in any niche. So are you ready to take action? Let's jump in. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Mind Your OT Business. When I first started this podcast almost three years ago now, I cannot believe it has been that long. I started in March of 2019 was when I started. I think I published the first episode near the end of March in 2019. And When I first started this podcast, I was very, very committed to only having occupational therapy practitioners as guests because I really wanted to highlight the expertise of some of the most incredible OT business owners that I have known in the work that I do. And so for a very long time, I did not have anyone on the podcast who was not an OT. And I realized that as I was recording episodes and learning more about business, that we really can't be experts in areas that we are not meant to be experts in. And what I mean by this is that an occupational therapy practitioner, or if you're listening as a PT or as a speech therapist, or maybe you're a mental health counselor listening to this podcast, if you are a helping professional your job is not to understand taxes. Your job is not to understand bookkeeping. You need to outsource the things that are not in your wheelhouse or are things that you do not need to do in order to run your business effectively and use your helping professional brain to do only the things that you can do in your business. And so as time went on, I decided that I was going to have different people on the podcast to speak to specific topics that helping professional business owners may need to know about in their business. And this is one of those episodes. This is an epic episode. You are going to want to probably listen more than once as well as take notes. So make sure your phone is handy to type in notes or get out a notebook and a pen Uh, because this episode gives you so much helpful information to understand the super interesting and fun topic of taxes. My accountant, Sandy York, is here. She is at Fit Money Coach on Instagram. She's incredible. I love her dearly. She has helped me so much in my business. Highly recommend her. She is an expert on all things accounting, business, bookkeeping, and taxes, and she is here to share with us how to understand business taxes. The reason I asked her to do this is because we'll hear a little bit in the episode when we start the interview 
I recently relocated across the country. So my practice is still, this is at time of recording this, this is late January of 2022. Um, Last year in April, I moved across the country from California to Wisconsin. My practice is still in California and I go back several times a year year to be with my team and we have meetings online. So I manage the practice remotely while I live in Wisconsin because we needed to be near my husband's family for a season. We love it here. I don't think we're going to move back anytime soon, but we've kind of planned to be here now. It's a little personal share, but we've planned to be here now until my youngest child, probably until he graduates from high school, which is another eight years. So we love it here. It's been a great experience. However, I was in the middle of a cross-country move and settling into a new town and managing my business last year. And I did not report my move to my payroll system until, I don't know, five or six months after I moved. And so there were all these back taxes due to Wisconsin. And it was just kind of a mess that that Sandy really helped me with, honestly. I, I started working with Sandy in June of last year. So she I moved before all of this. This wasn't her fault that I missed the missed the notice that I was supposed to change my address with the um, state that I was living in. So anyway, it was just kind of a mess with taxes. And it made me realize that whole experience made me realize that I did not understand, really. I did not have an understanding of all of the taxes that my business pays and where I pay them, how I need to pay them, and the systems, getting systems in place around managing the taxes so that I can sleep at night and I don't worry about it when I'm falling off to sleep. Am I the only one who does this? Like you think of all the things in your business, the loose ends that you've meant to be doing right when you're falling asleep and you're like, oh, I forgot I got to do that. Taxes. Taxes were like that for me. So I hope that this episode, I personally learned so much in this episode, and I really hope that it will be a good reference for all of you to get this education while you're on the go, listen to the podcast, but then maybe revisit the podcast and take some notes and get yourself organized so that you understand taxes in your business. So without further ado, because this was a very long intro, here is my interview with Sandra. She goes by Sandy York at Fit Money Coach on Instagram. She's a CPA and tax person extraordinaire. (laughs) Welcome, Sandy York, CPA and bookkeeper amazing extraordinaire person that I love. Thank you so much for being here. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. I think that we're going to focus on the topic of taxes. And I think that this topic is something that most if not all, I guess I shouldn't say all because you never know if there's like a therapist out there who was a bookkeeper before they became a therapist. But most, the vast majority of therapists have no clue when it comes to taxes. So I, we were joking about this before we, when we were scheduling this interview that I'll be the perfect person to ask questions because I am in that category of knowing maybe like 10% of what there is to know about taxes. And we recently went through, I, I told you this before, but I want you to feel free to like share my mistakes publicly. We can talk about any mistakes I've made publicly on this podcast to help other people kind of not make those same mistakes because moving to a different state threw me for a loop and maybe we can hit that at some point. So anyway, yes. <laughs> so why don't you tell people a little bit about your business, what you do, who you are, et cetera, et cetera. And then we'll dive into taxes. Okay. So my name is Sandy York. 
I am a CPA and I have a little over 30 years experience. I still can't stomach saying that, but I do. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I have been in and out of public accounting over the years, which being in public accounting or out of public accounting simply means that you work for a CPA firm and you're doing either audits or taxes or whatever. You, you are the place people go to get their taxes done. Right. And most recently I was at a very large firm in Buffalo, New York, where the burnout was real. Mm. A couple years ago, I started on Instagram, a hobby account called Fit Money Coach. And I started it because a friend of mine who has been, has worn a lot of hats in her lifetime as well, was a trainer for a lot of like, decades. And she's like, you know, as much as you, you know, I was a gym rat, always have been. Right. Uh, she's like, as much as you love, you know, the whole health and fitness thing, I think there could be a niche for you here because nobody that goes into that space understands business at all. Nobody's taught how to be an entrepreneur. Right. So I kind of explored that idea, came up with the Instagram handle fit money coach and just started throwing out bits and blurbs of information. Yeah. The first thing I started to offer was coaching calls. And I still offer those now where people can schedule time to just talk to me and, and ask their questions. Mm -hmm. And then in July of 2021, just a few short months ago, mm -hmm. I left my full-time job to take Fit Money Coach full-time and it has exploded, which is great, but I'm, I'm still at that stage where I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to. Now I'm trying to get my feet solidly underneath me and make sure that I stay on top of all of the balls in the air and, and all of that yeah. good stuff. So I'm kind of in a unique position of, yes, being an accounting, bookkeeping, tax advisor, but at the same time, being in a familiar trench that your listeners would be in, in, in terms of growing their business. Yeah, that's a huge, I feel like that's a, that's a big step at which a lot of people, it, it's like you get to a place where you're starting and you're kind of really, really stressed with all the things and worried you're going to do something wrong. And then you get to where it kind of feels good. And then suddenly you're big enough that you have to get new systems in place and a team together. And it, it's a whole new learning yes. curve where you have to learn how to manage a team and delegate things to others and really lead a team well and like take care of everyone. And it's a, it's a completely different ball game. Yeah. yeah. Because you can only do so much. Right. And so you're, you're going to have to hire someone else because you're going to get more people after this podcast goes live. No. <laughs> <laughs> The funny thing is I did a podcast a few months ago with Krista Gurka and at the end of it, she like did this. She's like, I'm putting it out into the universe that you are going to need to hire people. This is really going to take off. And the universe listened. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're like, okay, wait okay. list. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with a wait list. Really? I mean, that's like, that builds the anticipation with which people could wait for you to be ready to take them on as a client. Because I know a lot of people, like at least in my experience, I, in fact, I know someone that I referred to you. She just told me she, she maybe snapped up. I know recently when we talked, you said you had like two spots left. She might've taken one of those spots, but I know that like the business owners that I work with, a lot of times they're working with an accountant or a bookkeeper that they don't really love, but they're just kind mm -hmm. of like, oh, the work it'll take to switch. And ugh. so like right. a wait list might not be a bad thing. Maybe it helps people kind of get everything ready to, to move over. And then they'll be even happier when they get someone who actually takes care of them. Like you have of me. <laughs> 
in response that, you know, the number one complaint is that they're not, clients are not heard. They do not get responses to their emails and their phone calls. Yeah. And, and I get it because I've been on the other side of the fence too, where you're, you know, if, if people can compare, I know your audience is mostly therapists, but if you can think about that PT mill situation that so many people are familiar with, where physical therapists are just like cranking through patient after patient after patient oh, every yeah, day. Yeah. It's very similar to be in public accounting and just get in a very large firm and just get overwhelmed with, you know, trudging through the work. Yeah. And it's one of my, my goals is to make sure that my clients always feel heard. They can always get a response from me. Even if I have to say, I've got your email, I will respond in X amount of time. That's just as important as actually answering the question right away. Just let somebody know, hey, I did get this and I will get back to you. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you've helped me so much because I know we've, we haven't worked together that long, just in full transparency for people, but, but I was in a, in a space where also, I think this is something a lot of therapists do. They use like an online platform of some kind, right? I was using Mazuma and I'll just straight up say like, do not use them. I, in the past have given them a B plus rating, but near the end, I don't know if the company grew too much, right? Like and it grew too fast and then they just couldn't keep up, but or maybe the pandemic made things really hard, but man, you saw me. I mean, I was like, I can't get anyone to reply to me. My taxes are overdue. I ended up paying hundreds of dollars in, in fees because my taxes were filed late. I think it was like a $500 fee I had to pay that they're not paying that, you know? So you came to the rescue early and helped me get them in at least before like a, a way, even more penalties would have um, been piled on. But literally it's exactly what you said. Literally, I probably sent... 15 to 20 emails that just no one replied to, like just no one ever got back to me. So I I think the lesson here for anyone listening is do your research and make sure that the person that you are hiring to do your bookkeeping or your accountant accounting, which can sometimes be different people. Sometimes people have a bookkeeper and then there's an accountant who checks in quarterly or something like that. But, but just ask that question when you're, when you're hiring someone, right? Like in a realistic sense, how feasible is it that you can reply to an email within a week, you know, or something like that, that might be a question people could ask. So, and you were very helpful to me. I mean, I know I hit you at good times too, maybe, but also like just helping me not kind of be panicky and, and also to just see it as like, okay, this was a mistake you made. Like I didn't file the the problem. Everyone, if you're listening is that I didn't change my business address right away when I moved to Wisconsin, like my residential address. And I guess because I live in a different state, I was kind of just assuming like my practices in California, everything will be taken care of with California taxes because I'm just running the online part of the business from Wisconsin. There's no practice here. I'm not delivering services to people where I live right now. And, and actually no, but <laughs> Like, Wisconsin wants their cut of my money, as does California. And so I had to just kind of file in Wisconsin and do all this with what they want withholding from my from my paycheck here because I live in Wisconsin. And so my payroll from my business has to be Wisconsin, not California. So this is the crazy situation I found myself in that kind of brought us to doing this podcast where I was like, you know what? I feel like I'm a pretty savvy business owner. Like I'm I'm not, I don't have all my stuff together, but like I'm pretty on top of it with things. And if this could happen to me where I'm like, wow, I forgot to change my resident address in payroll for five months. And when I finally got around to it, 
was subject to a lot of back withholding and, and some fees and stuff, which weren't so bad, but so you just helped me navigate that. And I was so thankful. And so let's, let's kind of break down, let's dive into this tax topic here because I was sort of forced to figure this out with you as I went because of my move, which maybe is a good thing. Maybe that's, we learn from things we go so maybe it's a good Absolutely. thing. I <laughs> Absolutely. The big thing, you know, the big takeaway is, you know, you may face some additional expenses because you made mistakes that you didn't know that you made. So you might have to pay some fees, penalties, whatever. Right. Nobody's going to go to jail because they made this kind of mistake. So I try to talk everyone off the ledge and be like, you can get yourself out of this mistake. It may take you a little bit of money to right. do it, but it's not like it's going to be the end of the world. It's not like you have, you know, I don't even know if it's a, a decent comparison to say it's not like you have a bankruptcy on your record because, you know, right. have, especially after the pandemic, does anybody even care anymore? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, you know, it's it's not a blemish on your permanent record. It's it's a learning experience. So yes, we want to get ahead of that as much as possible, but also realize that if you do make a mistake, it can be corrected. Right. Exactly. And that's how I felt. I mean, you just were like, it's okay. Just let's do it. You helped me with all those forms, which, oh gosh, I was like, I can't fill this out. I literally, I I, I don't even understand what this is asking me, you know, cause it was a tax form. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, let's talk about the, the different, there, there's several different categories of taxes that business owners pay. Right. And that's where I think things can get really confusing because as a business owner, there's several different places and different ways you have to pay taxes. So can you kind of break down maybe the basic categories of the type of taxes that business owners have to pay? Because that's different than what employees pay. So right. let's talk about what business owners pay. Right. So there are some broad categories. Um, probably the easiest and simplest is going to be if you once you reach the level of being an LLC or an S corporation. Typically, there's some sort of either a registration fee or and or a franchise tax that's going to be due annually. So I don't want to go get too deep into the nitty gritty before we yeah, cover all okay. of them. But that's like the basic. You're going to have something for just for being in business. Then you have to examine, are your services or products subject to sales tax? You also want to think about payroll tax if you have employees or if you yourself are an employee of your S corporation. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, the one everyone is most familiar with, which is income tax. And the business may or may not pay some form of income tax, which kind of goes back to franchise tax depending on, on the form of business. So those are the broad categories. You've got a, a potential filing fee or franchise tax, your sales tax, your payroll tax, and your income tax. Yeah. So I think even just listing those out, this is an example of how knowing about this and knowing how to know, knowing about these taxes helps you actually be aware of your business finances and, and finding ways to save money on taxes is actually a way to increase your the money that stays in your business, right? Because yes. there's just so many taxes. I was shocked when I wrote out everything that I was learning in this process. Just like, oh my gosh, I, I don't know. I just, I think in my mind, it was not as much money as it actually is mm -hmm. from, a, from a business owner standpoint. When you write out everything that you pay for taxes is a lot of money. Um, from your business. So, so let's really quick before we go on, I think I had written this down later, but can we talk about a little bit about 
you mentioned that when you get to the level of the S corporation or the LLC. So can you briefly talk about what, what you mean by that? Like, I know you have mentioned to me before that you recommend people stay a sole proprietor until a certain level. So let's just define the entities really quick and then dive back into the taxes. Sure. So the easiest form of business to open is a sole proprietor. It is just you operating your business. Right. Um, there are no other owners. It does not mean that you don't have employees. You can be a sole proprietor and still have employees. It's just that you are the only owner. The next step that people like to take is forming an LLC, limited liability company. And depending on what state you are in, that may or may not be available to you. Yeah. If you have a professional license from a regulatory body of the state, a lot of states will require you to have a PLLC, which is a professional limited liability company. Or if you're in a state like California, they won't actually allow you to form an LLC if you have a professional license. Right. Your, your choice is either sole, prep, sole prop or go full on S corp or corporation. I should not, I should not rule out corporation, but we'll talk in a little bit about why we generally rule that out. And most people yeah. go S corp. So I think of it as a business life cycle. And when your business is a baby, it's very easy to be a sole proprietor. At some point, you start to gather enough business, enough income. People in the niche that I work in, which is all health and fitness professionals, typically don't have a whole bunch of fixed assets in the business. They typically don't own the building that they work out of. Maybe they have some treatment tables or something mm -hmm. like that, but they don't have like this, this massive amount of assets. So... Um, there's nothing really to protect in the business except for the cash that's in the yeah. business. When you form the LLC, that gives you that limited liability protection that separates you personally from the assets of your business and from the debts of your business. Yeah. Although these days, if a, if a single member LLC or an escort member goes and tries to get a loan from the bank or anything, they're generally going to make you sign a personal guarantee. So we don't talk too much about LLC protecting you from the debts of the business yeah. anymore. I always tell people, I have to throw out this caveat. I'm a great accountant. I'm a lousy attorney. So this is, this is my level of understanding right, of the protection right. of LLC and S-Corp. You basically get the, the same corporate protection, whether you're talking LLC or S-Corp. It puts another entity in between you personally and the yes. business. But from a tax perspective, a single member LLC is disregarded by the IRS and the states, and you are still taxed as an individual. So it's very easy for people to use LegalZoom or something like that to set up their LLC, mm -hmm. get that, that level of legal protection that comes with it, and yet still file taxes as if they were a sole proprietor. Okay. At some point in your business life cycle, you may grow to the point where it makes sense tax-wise to be an S-Corp. And I typically don't recommend that until the person has, say, net income of around six figures after, yeah. or, or around six figures. And then you look at what it would take to pay yourself a reasonable salary. Once you become an S-Corp, the IRS requires you to put yourself on payroll and to pay yourself a reasonable salary because it's the employment taxes that they want from you. Yes. Okay. So there's not a lot of guidance around what's a reasonable salary. So you have to look at it in terms of what you do. 
reasonable salary for a surgeon is a lot different than a reasonable salary yeah. for a professional dog walker. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's not, it's never something where I can say, and I have heard people be given these limits. Someone will say, well, I heard as soon as I make 60,000 that I need to be forming an S corp. I, mm-hmm. without knowing all of the other circumstances that went into that conversation, I, I can't say that I agree with that. It's possible. But what I typically see is that for the person who is making under six figures, by the time they pay themselves a reasonable salary, that number, especially if they're the sole owner and they're the ones performing all of mm-hmm. the services, that number to be reasonable comp is so close to total income of the company that the amount you would save by not paying self-employment tax, and I'll back up and go back to that, <laughs> um, the amount that you would save in taxes is going to get eaten up by being an S-Corp, having to put yourself on payroll, paying a payroll company. If you're an S-Corp, you really should have a bookkeeper that you're paying because you've got to, you have a lot more complicated yep. set of books to keep for a lot more complicated tax return to be prepared. So you've got all of the fees associated with that. Typically, there at that level, there will be some sort of state franchise tax or annual renewal fee that goes along with it. So it just it this the tax savings gets eaten up really quickly. So if you are under that hundred thousand dollar level mm-hmm. and you're looking at S corp, I want there to be a more compelling reason why you're looking towards S corp rather than the tax savings. Is it because you're in California and you want that corporate level of protection and you're not allowed to form an LLC? Is it because you've already got employees on payroll anyway? So payroll isn't going to be an added cost for you. And you want, you want a paycheck instead of taking draws. Maybe that's your reason, but there needs to be some sort of reason other than just the tax savings, because you're going to spend just as much in cash either way. Okay. So, and I heard you say something that actually I have said this to you before, and I'm just going to say it publicly recorded on the podcast for listeners to hear into eternity that I feel sometimes when I'm talking to, when I'm listening to like information about taxes, like I've done a lot of online training on this and I'm, I'm interested in learning about this, right? As you are learning something, there's going to be moments where it becomes really clear and then moments where your brain becomes foggy again. And that's sometimes how I feel when I hear it like pass through entity savings on taxes. Like I'm like, wait, okay, wait, wait, you know, like, <laughs> but I heard, I heard you say a few things where I had these moments of clarity where basically like for my practice, what I had to do in California was I had to be a corporation right away because I couldn't be an LLC. And right away, the bookkeeper I had at the time, this was six years ago, was like, we need to file to have you be an S corporation. So that is where I I think I understand that an S corporation is actually not something you start. It's a way that you're taxed. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So an LLC can be taxed as an S corporation or a corporation can be taxed as an S corporation. Yes. And that means that let's see if I know this. Okay. Let's just I don't know if I know this. <laughs> you might be like, no, that's wrong. Scratch that from the podcast, Laura. <laughs> that means that you, any earnings that you have are paid to you as payroll. If you're an S corporation, if you're being taxed as an S corporation, you as the owner are put on payroll and then you just pay your income tax level on that. But the way that you're saving is you're not paying the 15% self-employment tax extra thing that you would have if you were self-employed and not an S corporation. Is that 
accurate or am I a little You, off? you are 99% the way there. Okay. Tell me the 1% yeah. I didn't get. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's back up that to that step where I realized as I was speaking, I needed to back up the main difference between a single member LLC or sole proprietor. I'm going to use single member LLC and sole proprietor interchangeably, because as far as the IRS is concerned, that's the same thing. Yeah. They're so like the one main person essentially that yes. owns it. Yeah. Yes. The main difference between a single member LLC and a single member S corporation is that in the S corporation, you're putting yourself on payroll. You are paying the FICA and social security out of your paycheck and you as the employer, and we'll get to this when we start talking about payroll taxes, you have to match, the employer has to match that social security and Medicare contribution. Yes. When you're a single member LLC, you're not on payroll. You're just taking owner draws. And so you have to pay self-employment tax on your entire net income. What self-employment tax actually represents is that social security and Medicare tax that would be in your paycheck if you were on payroll. And it's 15.3% because it's your piece as the employee, if you will, and Mm -hmm. your piece as the employer, you're paying both halves into your social security fund for yourself. So the way you save that money when you become an S-corp is that you want to wait until the point where you can pay yourself that reasonable salary and still have profit left over. So let's throw some numbers at this. Let's say that your business as an S-corp netted $100,000. You paid yourself. I just did that backwards. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Rewind. (laughs) Rewind. So before you pay yourself, your S corporation is netting $100,000. Then you pay yourself a salary of $80,000. So the corporation's actual net income is $20,000. You are going to pay the the social security and Medicare tax through your paycheck on that Mm $80,000. And the company, your S corp is going to match that. The remaining 20,000 that's left over is still going to pass through to you as income to get taxed, but only at your regular individual income tax levels. You're not going to pay self-employment tax on that piece. So that's what your goal is. Your goal is to grow that profit well above what your reasonable salary is so that because that's the piece that's escaping the self-employment tax. Mm, Okay. So So the higher that net profit is after you've paid yourself payroll at a reasonable level is what you're going to escape self-employment tax on. When S-Corps first came out, everybody was like, sweet, I'm not going to pay self-employment tax. I'm not going to take a payroll, whatever. And then the IRS came out and said, no, you have to put yourself on payroll. So everybody's like, okay, cool. My business netted $100,000. I'm going to put myself on payroll for $15,000 this year. And I'm the only person performing services. Right, <laughs> and, right. And that's it. And they're like, no, that's not going to work. What will happen is they will come knocking on, they won't come knocking on your door. I always use that. <laughs> and people are like, what? Right. They're really, they don't really knock on your door. You get a notice in the mail that says, this is not reasonable. We want you to go back to the beginning of when you paid yourself and pay us all of the employment taxes that you should have paid us on this as payroll. Yeah. Yes. Plus penalties and interest. So that's a, that's the reason why you have to make sure that your salary is reasonable. 
So a way that therapists could do that is to look at what other therapists in your community are making. Like you could go on indeed.com and find out what a manager at a hospital is making or what a lead therapist is making. If you're the owner of the business, right. And you can, if you're in that range, the IRS will probably be fine with it. Like they're not going to be like our we checked and that you are $2 over. Like they're not that nitty nitpicky about it. But, and I know in the past I did have one good accountant in my time with Mizuma. They changed a lot because it's a big, you know, a big business. It's like an online bookkeeping system. But I, I had one call with an accountant where we, we were looking at the amount of money that my business brought in per year and the amount that the IRS would consider a reasonable salary. So in, in some way, Am I right in saying that a reasonable salary might not even be a per hour rate, but it might be based on like actually how much money you've made and how much money in the business and how much money you're keeping as the owner? Because that example you just gave, like if you make a hundred thousand, but you only keep $15,000 and the rest of it is sitting in the bank, the IRS is clearly like, no, you need to like give us our employment tax money on all that money you should have paid yourself. Right. Okay. Right. So I'm, yeah, I'm having so there's, moments there's, of more moments of clarity are coming yes. here, Sandy. This is good. Yes. This is really to help me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll just publish it so, to help others too. <laughs> you can look at, you can do exactly what you said and look at what other therapists are being paid in your market area. You can consider what would you hire someone to yeah. and, and pay them at. You could say, what would I, what would it take for someone to pay me for me to do this job? Because a lot of times when your business is growing, you're not making what you want to make in the future. And so, you know, you have your startup year and maybe you're only making 40,000 a year. And you're like, I would not accept a job for 40,000 a year. I would accept a job for, you know, X number per year. So that there's just a few different ways you can look at it. They used to publish a table, which they haven't done for years about looking at the level of net profit of a business, like in a, in a range and saying, okay, okay, the owner should be taking maybe 55% of this as, oh, interesting. As okay. Income, but they don't publish that anymore. And I think they were trying to get away from any kind of hard and fast formulas where people were trying to figure this out and just yeah. making it more, more gray, which can be beneficial because it's up to you to give the facts and circumstances of how you determined that you are being paid a reasonable amount. Now, I will say this has been harped on my entire career, reasonable comp. It has been listed as one of the hot audit triggers for the IRS. I have never seen anyone audited for reasonable comp. And I don't know if that just means that I'm lucky. I wasn't dealing with the right you know, maybe my, maybe my clients weren't high enough income to, to be under that much scrutiny about it. I don't want to like, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and say, it's not going to happen because it's constantly out there in print. This is what you need to do. But I would say, do your due diligence, try to be reasonable about it. And once you reach that number that you're comfortable that you could defend as a reasonable number, don't lose sleep over it. Yeah, exactly. That's I think that's good advice. That's like, I try, I try to reassure myself when I get stressed about the finances or like tax things. Like when I have those moments, which I think every business owner has had moments where they're like, what if I did something wrong on taxes and they come after me and I'm audited because we all keep good records. We all keep our receipts. We all have our digital systems for everything, but honestly, going through an audit would take so much time. Right. I think I'm more worried about, it's not like that. I'm worried about that. I would 
get in trouble for anything because I have all the documentation. Just the thought of having to pull up, I should be knocking on wood right now, shouldn't I? Like, <laughs> just the thought of having to pull up every single document from the year, whatever that I was taxed, like that's what stresses me out. And at the same yeah. time, I always, right after I think that, tell myself, I am small peanuts to the IRS. Like, is it worth it for the IRS to come after a business that makes about 300 grand a year? I mean, I don't know. Like maybe if I'm making way more, like I want to make in future years, but right now it just feels like the, the likelihood is rare. So just, I love your approach too, to just say like, don't stress out over it. You can get out of any situation you get in, just do your due diligence, have people help you and small steps forward and and work it out. So, okay. So let's, that was good. That was a good kind of overview of entities. And now let's talk about payroll taxes. Does that seem like a good next topic to kind of, like it kind of segues into it? It does. And I want to, if we could, I, there's, there's so much to cover in payroll yeah. taxes, but kind of want to like jump right into the heart of your situation with moving to Wisconsin and not Great. knowing that, you know, changing your address would trigger it with your payroll company. So, okay. First things first, I always recommend that you hire a payroll company for your payroll services, just because They are experts in the area. If you get the full service, they're going to do all of your quarterly reporting for you. And if anything ever goes wrong, it's not you. Well, let's, let's, (laughs) I know what you mean. You would technically be on the hook for any penalties and interest. But if you've got a service that you're paying money to, to do that for you, you can go back to the service and tell them, Hey, you were supposed to file this by this deadline and you did not. And of course there's always extenuating circumstances over they tried, but you didn't have the money in the bank, that kind of thing. But in general, payroll company is the way to go. Most people are using, most small businesses are using small business apps. Gusto and OnPay are really popular right now. Love on, I use OnPay. I love it. Love it. Like I can't describe how much I love it. Like (laughs) they have been so helpful. It's, it's cheaper than Gusto. Like I know people love Gusto too. And honestly, I kind of wanted to use Gusto because their branding is really good. There was something about their branding that made it like trendy to use. And I found myself kind of wooed by the branding. I, when I was making the decision, it was like Gusto or OnPay for some reason, OnPay offers all the same things. I mean, I couldn't see any difference between the two. The reviews were great online. But somehow I really wanted to use Gusto, even though it was significantly more expensive, almost double the cost, I want to say. Wow. And I, but there's something about branding. I mean, it's real. I know this yeah. is a discussion about branding, but there's something about branding and things being trendy. And yeah. Gusto is so, people love Gusto. They have raving customers. So I'm just going to be a raving customer for OnPay to say, like, I chose OnPay because I couldn't rationally see any reason not to choose it. And I always figured if I hated it, I could move to Gusto later. Yeah. But I've been so happy with OnPay and I pay just for everyone's information. This is 2022, January, when we're recording this, I pay $60 a month, I think, for them to do payroll for five employees. And they also have workers comp insurance that like integrates with it. So the pay, nice. they, the payroll is sent to the workers comp and I pay payroll like on a pay as you go basis so that I am not doing the like surprise at the end of the year, you owe a thousand dollars more for workers comp insurance. So, so I've been really, really happy with them. I just want to give them a shout out because I, I love them and I'm enthusiastically sharing what I love and don't love (laughs) when I 
have a, a podcast platform to announce it from. So, okay. So yes, you, so I love that. I love that you looked at both of them and you were able to get past the branding and actually go with the option that <laughs> saved you money. I mean, the accountant in me just absolutely loves that. And, and I, I get it. it. I hear what you're saying about the branding, because when I log into a client's payroll and I'm waiting for the screen to come up. And instead of the little circle, there's a little pig wearing a scarf walking across the screen. You know? It's it's very entertaining. <laughs> right, right. It's fun. It makes it fun. It's fun. Is that gusto? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so That's anyway, funny. I appreciate that you saved the monies and went with something that does exactly the same thing and works fantastically for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's been good, but I agree not to have, like I have my admin, my practice manager, who manages so much more than admin in, in the business, but she runs payroll in on pay, but I highly agree that you should not try to do payroll on your own as far as like figure out the taxes and be writing a check to people. Like, even if you're small, just pay the, I mean, it's, it's a tiny yeah. bit of money. Even if you have one person, it's yeah. worth it to use on pay or gusto to, to do all the calculations of your payroll and to have everything Absolutely. in one place. You can run reports and things like that. So I used ADP in the past and it was awful. They made mistakes. Mm-hmm. It was horrible. So that ADP, is one that I would say. Yep. No. They ADP and paychecks both are like the, the granddaddies of the yeah. payroll company world. And they are still very well revered in large corporate life. Sure. What I found personally when I worked in Buffalo, I don't know who's going to be listening to this, <laughs> what I found <laughs> <Probably> personally <laughs> was that um, my smaller clients, they just didn't have the time of day for. It was the same as trying to get a call back from from a small CPA firm. You know, you just you know, if you're you're small. Exactly, potatoes. that was exactly but. my experience. I had an issue; they hadn't reported something right to Social Security. I was getting all these notices that something wasn't reported right, and they just wouldn't reply to me. So, in fact, that's probably still outstanding. I've sent so many emails, and yeah. Anyway, one more thing so- that I may need to follow up on later, like. <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to Uh, touch on, before we go in like the total cost of payroll, I wanted to touch on this idea because this is going, I think this is affecting a lot of people right now. And I just had this conversation with a potential client um, last week. She was asking about hiring. She's getting ready to hire an employee and the employee works in a different state than her business. Her business is online. So she can hire employees from anywhere. Yeah. And I said, okay, that's great. Don't forget that you're going to need to register as for as an employer in that state and your payroll company should handle that for you. And there was a, we had a lot of back and forth Mm -hmm. where she's like, no, I think you misunderstand. I'm not doing business in that state. I just, I have an online business and I'm hiring an employee who works in that state that hiring an employee in a different state from the one your business work operates in that makes you an employer in that state. And you've got to get registered with that state as an employer And once you do that, it could potentially subject you to sales tax or income tax in that other state. So it opens a whole nother can of worms. So as we are talking about payroll, think about where you are hiring employees. And we'll talk too about independent contractors and and why they're so attractive. It's going to be pretty obvious once we start going into payroll, why independent contractors are so attractive. It's just something I, I, before we even get into it, I want to make sure that I touch on that because I don't want people to lose sight of that. It's very easy to think that 
I do business in this state and everything is based from here. But the second you hire an employee in a different state, then you are now an employer in that state. And yes. on pay, gusto, QuickBooks payroll, whatever you use, they should be aware of that when they are when you're completing the employee paperwork and signing them onto payroll, they should see the address and understand, oh, now we've got to get you registered in this state. Yeah. So I think that was what happened with me essentially. So it's not that I hired an employee in Wisconsin, but I physically moved my body and my family to Wisconsin. Yeah. (laughs) And so my, I mean, it's exactly, literally exactly what you just said is exactly how I was thinking about it. Right. That my business is in California. I'm not really that, that income, the online income, like who cares where that's generated? Like my business is in California, so it'll just be taxed still in California. I don't have to do anything. Well, no, like, because I'm an employee in my business, because I own the business, it is in Wisconsin. So mm-hmm. like I have an employee now in Wisconsin myself. <laughs> so right. that is a very, very good tip and exactly what I, and actually I, I just want to be clear for everyone listening that Sandy and I like, we started working together in like June, right? Like shortly after I had moved here, it was like May or June that we had, that we transitioned June or July even, I think. So sometime during the summer. So it was after I had already moved. So this is not Sandy's fault, everyone that I, (laughs) she did not (laughs) notify me because we weren't working together until summer after I'd already moved. So you wouldn't have known of it, but your response when I found it out was just so gracious and helpful. So I just appreciate you. So, okay. We're going to talk about payroll taxes now. Yeah. They suck. They suck. And and this is, I said this on my last episode where I did end of review, year end review of all my numbers, like that if you are an employer, people listening to this, this is for entrepreneurs. So I'm speaking to people who would be employers, right? Not necessarily if you're an employee somewhere thinking about starting your business, but right now I'm talking to business owners on this podcast. You have to be aware of employment taxes when you hire people because- If you do the math on like, this is the hourly rate that I'm going to pay, and this is how much I can afford to pay someone, but you're not thinking about taxes and all of the other added things that you have to pay for an employee, you are going to have a problem in your business budget. And on the flip side, if if you are an employee listening to this and you're just someone who's like thinking about running a business, just be aware that your employer is paying you a lot more than your hourly rate. (laughs) So let's talk about how much we pay yeah. in employment taxes. <laughs> well, we've already touched on the FICA and the social security and the difference between being a single member LLC and an S corp is those that self-employment tax. Right. So if you look at the, both of those pieces together, whether we're talking about the single member LLC or the employer, but we'll focus on the employer now, the two combined are 15.3%. Now, the employee in in the employee employer relationship where you are you have someone on payroll the employee is going to pay 7.65% of that and you are going to match that 7.65%. That's the easiest one to figure out. If you're going to pay somebody $35 an hour multiply by 1.0765 and you'll know what the, your total is just for the social security and medicare piece. But wait, but that's not more. all. <laughs> <laughs> From there, it gets it gets more difficult to come up with a percentage, a flat right. percentage and say, okay, budget for this, because you're going to be as the employer on the hook for FUTA tax and SUTA tax. That's federal unemployment and state unemployment. Federal unemployment is only paid on the first $7,000 of wages 
and it's 6%. So you're paying 420 bucks a year for the employee. So not huge dollars, but something that you need to yeah. be aware of. That's not something you withhold out of their paycheck. That's something you pay as the employer. In addition to that, you have the state's match of that. And it's very tough on states because they, the, the rate will go anywhere from 2% to, I think I saw 4% as, as the highest. And on that one, their base changes. Like the federal is a flat. It's on the first $7,000 that you pay the person for the entire year. Washington state, it's on the first 56,500 that you pay oh, the wow. person. So, yeah. you know, it may only be 2%. I don't know what Washington's rate is, but it's on a much higher base. So when you were thinking of becoming an employer, you've really got to get on your state's website and figure out, okay, I am looking for our unemployment rate. The next thing you're looking for is the workman's comp rate, because you're going to have to pay that. And that's a really interesting situation too, because some states like Washington break that down into an hourly component. And based on whether you are a construction work construction company that has people working up on roofs or you are some sort of office employer where your employees are sitting at a desk all day your rates are going to be entirely different because there's less risk of, yeah which of makes having, sense really of, i mean you know, having a claim yeah so washington actually will break it down into this many dollars or cents per hour worked whereas states like new york you have to buy an insurance policy for the year so yeah. it, that's really tough to break down and say, you can count on this being an additional 10% or, or whatever yeah. and, until you get on your state's website and figure out what it is your state requires. You're not really going to know. Those are the biggies. You get, you get things like California's, is it education and training tax? Oh, it's like, it, oh, I wrote it down. I wrote it down. It's employment training tax or something. It's yes. like the weirdest when I was doing all this, like, okay, I'm going to get my act together and know every single tax that my business, my business pays. It's an employment training tax. It's like some small Seven amount, bucks. but yeah. and I can't even remember what it's for. I looked it up. It's like a very small amount. It's like yeah. 1% or something. It's yeah. like very, point, very it's small. It's 0.1% of something. the first 7,000. Yeah. So it works out to seven bucks per employee per year. So teeny tiny, but again, just something else to be aware of. You know, right. the, the big heavy hit, the big heavy hitter is going to be your FUTA and SUDA. And I'm, I'm, yeah, you're, I'm sorry, your FICA and social security. That's yeah. the big heavy hitter. FUTA and SUDA is a little less. Workman's comp could be anywhere all over the board. For someone who is working in an online space, for someone who is working with people like in a therapy situation, but you're not like lifting and carrying people, it's mm -hmm. going to be a lot lower than, you know, alternatives out there for other risky jobs. Yeah. So the, the main point is, and, and for all of the taxes, whether we're talking about your income tax, your sales tax, your payroll tax, get really friendly with your state's website. If you go to your state's website, there will be a section for each one of these taxes and a section for employers so that you can find out information on all of this. And some of it may require a phone call to the state, but yeah. they want your money. They will talk to you. <laughs> right, 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 right. Or, you know, or how having your accountant help like that form, the complexity of the form when I moved here to register my business with the state was so complex because I had income 
that was like in the months when I had, you know, it was this like really yes. complex, like calculations that had to be done, which maybe for you wasn't as complex as it was for me to look at it. But that's where like, it's like what you say, just being aware that changes you make in your business, hiring someone from out of state, moving out of state, moving your business to a different state, like those kinds of things, you really should not just learn from my mistakes. Everyone, you really should not put it off. Like I, it's not that I was putting it off. It's just literally, I was so busy with the move and with business. And I just was all of a sudden like, Oh, it's October. And I forgot to change my, (laughs) we moved here in April. So anyway, (laughs) but, um, Okay. So I have a question based on my little list here of taxes that I had written down when I was learning. So we have the federal unemployment and the state unemployment. We have federal taxes that are paid out of the employee's payroll. They pay 7.65. We pay 7.65 or something like that. Right. Yep. For that's covers social security and Medicare. I have state withholding on my list. Like, is there state withholding or is that covered in the, what is that different than the 15.3%? Like they pay seven, we pay seven. Yeah. The federal withholding. So I mean the state the, withholding, sorry. Yeah. The federal and the state withholding are both paid by the employee. So oh, okay. you're going to okay. have your, your gross wages. You're going to deduct from them the social security and Medicare, and then you're going to deduct for them their federal withholding and their state withholding for income tax based on what they filled out on their form W-4 in the state equivalent of form W-4 as far as allowances and and all of that good stuff. So that is, those are monies that the employee pays, but it, you know, you still have the cash there. Like you take it out of their paycheck and you hold it and then submit it to the government on their behalf. What's that's what your payroll that? processor does. That's yes. like, <laughs> yes, that's why that you need on payer gusto. Cause you don't want to do this math. <laughs> no, you don't want to do the math. And also that becomes a trust trustee relationship. You have taken money from your employee that mm-hmm. is not yours to keep. It belongs to the state or it belongs to the federal government. Yeah. And that's why penalties are so high when people there, there are employers out there I have seen this in my career numerous times mm-hmm. where they they did not budget well for what they need. They needed to hire people, but they had no idea the taxes that were that would go along with that. They didn't have the cash to pay it. So they're withholding this money from their employees, but then they're spending it in the business, not realizing yeah. that that's a huge no-no that has severe penalties for it. And when you don't pay the money and you don't file the quarterly forms because with with payroll and what another thing your payroll provider is doing for you is filing these quarterly reports yeah. to the federal government and the state government saying what your payroll was and how much you withheld and all of that right. good stuff that the penalties add up quickly in that area so yeah. you you never want to violate a trust relationship and we'll get into the next one the next trust relationship is if you're charging sales tax and collecting that from people that's not your money that's the state's money Yes. So let's last thing I want to say about employment taxes or employee taxes you pay on an employee is that if you've listened to this conversation thus far, it's clear that it is worth the 50 or 60 bucks, whatever you're going to pay to on pay or Gusto. I think Gusto is like 80 or 90 right now. It's so worth it to protect yourself. It gives you peace of mind knowing that you have a company that is taking care of 
filing the quarterly returns on time, withholding the money, paying to the government what's due to the government so that you're not the one holding that money. So I think this conversation, I I hope that it will be very illuminating for people who are maybe, I think a lot of times therapists are a little bit too chintzy, like we're, I should say frugal, but but like we're frugal, right? So we we tend to not want to spend money on things we don't want to spend money on, don't need mm-hmm. to spend money on. Mm-hmm. And this is an area where you need to spend money on this. It's the same thing I say to people like get a bookkeeper right away. Don't try to do your books. You'll mess it up. Just get a bookkeeper, pay the money to someone to help you with your books. And that's how you're going to make more money when you have someone helping you understand your numbers. Right. So, right. so don't skimp on this, like pay the money to a payroll processor. Yeah. To your or- point on that, you will generally be faced with an option when you sign up for payroll where it's partial payroll or full payroll. Partial payroll would be they calculate everything for you, but then they leave it up to you to actually submit the payroll tax deposits and to submit the quarterly reports that they come up with. That's going to be a much cheaper option than the full service option where they actually take the money from you, deposit it on your behalf and file the reports. Go with the full service option. It's worth it. Yes. And I think that's what I have. Well, I, I hope that's what I have. I'm sure, you I'm, I'm sure that's what I have. Cause I haven't gotten any notices yeah. that like, if, you, if you're getting your W2 every year, you're good. <laughs> right. Okay, good. <laughs> Great. Okay. And then the last thing before we go to sales tax, let's touch really quickly on independent contractor versus employee. Yes. So yes, yes. this is something that I have really, we've had a lot of conversations in my business uh, with my employees because I knew from the very beginning, especially in California, California has major, I think in other States, it might work for me to have independent contractors. Like actually, if I ever open a practice in Wisconsin, which I I think I likely will do after I finish my PhD this year, like I can't do anything else this year, but if I open a branch of my business here in Wisconsin, I might be able to have independent contractors here. But in California, there are very specific laws. They make it very hard to have independent contractors. And I've had some enthusiastic discussions with my employees about this because a couple of them really want to be independent contractors. Like that would be the preferred thing. And I have to say, like, I would want you to do that too. I would love to give you full control over your scheduling. You manage your business. You do all, I mean, it's, it's benefit to the employer actually. If you can run your business with all independent contractors, it's so much cleaner and simpler. It's a different business model. But in California specifically, if you control any element of that person's work, they are an employee. If you tell them that they need to show up on Tuesday at 3 p.m., if you tell them, like in my practice, we use a very specific treatment model that's an outdoor treatment model that I developed. So if I tell them we all need to use the Contigo approach in our practice, this is how we do business at Outdoor Kids OT, that makes them an employee. I'm controlling their work as the employer. Right. I mean, in a sense, they have a lot of freedom too. Like right. I, I, and they are doing the services of a therapist. And so yes. because that's what you're in business to do that, yes. that takes it off the table right there. Yeah. That was the like key you could thing. contract an admin person if you didn't set their hours and, and all of that. Yes, good stuff. exactly. So my business is a great example of that. So that is the key thing. Thank you for bringing that up. Cause in my pontificating about everything, I forgot to say that. So that's the key thing, right? Like the IRS. And is this globally in the U S like for all States that the IRS, no, it's just in California. Yeah. That's California right now. I okay. will not be surprised. California just came out with that two Maybe years ago, three years ago. 
Yeah. I still have the paper with the words, do a podcast episode on this question mark on the top of it. Yeah. They send it to every business owner in the state. And I expect, I would not be surprised if like New York follows next and then you see any of the other more populous states follow right along with it. But right now, so the IRS does have its, its thing, it's right. guidelines of what's what who is an employee and who is an independent contractor. They were the first ones that had an interest in this because again, they want your employment taxes. Yeah. So it's there's a 20 factor test, but it's very broad. It's it has to do with the things that you mentioned where you can't control their work day. You can't train them to do what it is they're doing. That you, you should be hiring someone that already knows what they're doing. For example, you did not have to train me how to be a bookkeeper. You just brought exactly. me on and said, Hey. I want you to be my bookkeeper. And I said, okay, here's what I charge. And you said, okay, I'm in agreement with that. You yeah. did not say, I need you to be a, a bookkeeper for me. I want you to work these hours. This is what I'm going to pay you. And this is how I expect you to get the work done. And oh, right. by the way, I want you to be a contractor. No, that would have been an employment relationship. Yeah. So there, there are economic factors. Your independent contractors ideally should be working for other employers as well. You want them to be in business for themselves. You don't yes. expect them to only work for you. They should have some risk of loss. In other words, as the business owner running your business, you bear all of the risk of loss. Like if you overspend your budget and you're losing money, that's on you. Um, the contractor should have be in that same situation on their side. Like if I don't, if I'm taking on all of these clients and I'm not charging enough and all of my costs get out of control, that's, that's on me. So those are the kind of tests from the IRS level. And most of the States are following pretty closely. And that's something else you can easily Google, put in your state's name, independent contractor rule, and it will come up. Michigan's is fantastic. They go through a whole big 20 point thing. The IRS is called a 20 factor test and I can't find the 20 factors anywhere, but I find it in Michigan quoting it as the IRS. That's great. That's great. (laughs) Very weird. But go again on your state's website, you can specifically Google that and see what is allowed in your state and what is not. The, The reason everybody wants to do it is because you get out of all of that payroll nonsense. All you have to do is just pick somebody and say, you, you're my independent contractor. This is how much you're getting paid an hour. And you just pay it. None of, none of the taxes that go along with it. It's so simple, but because it's so simple, there are all of these rules around it. Cause again, they're looking for, it's the same as the S corp salary. They are looking for the employment taxes on those people that you're paying. They want to make sure that it's not, you're not disguising an employee relationship. The the key, I think for business owners to know about independent contractors and employees is that independent contractors are running their own businesses. Yes. That is the that is essentially what it is. They are yep. running their own businesses. So if you are doing anything to control their work, if they are providing, and that's the thing you mentioned that in California, if you, and I, and I, I want to say this explicitly because I think there are a lot of practices in California that are doing this wrong. In fact, I personally know people who work in places that are doing this wrong. They're, they're wrongly classifying people as independent contractors who are truly employees, like in a clinic setting. If the, the California law in particular, and, the, and I think it's the law that you say you were going to see more states starting to, to take on this, this criteria, 
the California law specifically states that if you are a business that is organized to provide, for example, occupational therapy services, and you have someone in your business that is providing those services, they are automatically an employee. They are not an independent contractor because your business exists to provide therapy services and you have people providing therapy services in your business. Therefore, they are an employee. So is that accurate? Yep. Okay. So I hope that this helps some people. And I realize that some business owners might be listening to this, maybe even if you're in California and doing this right now, where you have people wrongly categorized. And I would encourage you to just think about it like what Sandy just said about like any kind of situation in your business, you can make it right. You can go through the process to make it right, but really you should do that. That is something that I have personally heard the IRS is like looking for, you know, they're looking to audit people who wrongly classify employees as independent contractors. So because they want that money. They want their tax money. (laughs) And the, and the States are not far in line behind them either, especially California. You put in a new rule like that. And that's, that's so pervasive. I mean, you think about it, you can kind of understand it in when you're talking about a licensed professional, but you think about it in any context, you know, someone who owns a gym can't contract their personal trainers. They've got to make them their employees. It's so pervasive that, yeah. And Part of it, you know, you wonder how they're going to find you out. I always think about this, like how, what would be the trigger? And the most common trigger in any employment audit is where someone, some employee gets angry, disgruntled and decides, you know, I'm going to go to the state and complain about X, Y, Z. And it could be someone who wanted the benefits. Maybe you have, maybe you're in a situation where you have contractors and you have employees. We didn't talk about bring an employee on and the out reaching a certain hours requirement where now you've also got to add on potentially offering them health insurance oh, as yeah. an added cost of payroll. Yes. So maybe you're in a situation where you have contractors and employees and you're offering health insurance to the employees and you have a contractor who is performing duties and accord in, in accordance with your scheduling that really makes them look pretty darn close to an employee, they could be the one to call the state and go, hey, I think I'm an, I'm an employee because they want the health insurance. Yeah. That's one of the ways that these things happen. I would imagine the other would be, you know, you're, you've got to file 1099s for all of your contractors. And I would imagine that there's got to be at some point, some sort of database that matches who these contractors are with what professional licenses they might hold. Yeah. And totally that way. Yep. And a 1099 is just the form that you give someone to say, this is how much I paid you this year. Yes. Right. Oh, there was something I wanted to touch on. Oh, I want to give one more example before we move on to sales tax of the independent contractor versus employee thing. So I was, I was in a it was kind of a business coaching call, but it was with a friend. So it was not paid, <laughs> but like they were telling me they were weighing kind of the options between taking a, you know, a school contract or working in a clinic setting. And they said, they were talking to me about like, so, okay, this is what the contract is. This is how much I would be paid. And this, they have a housing allowance because through my travel agency, whatever. And then over here on the side of the clinic. So this is what it is. I would like rent space there and they, I would be an independent contractor and they charge, you know, two fifty for an eval and one thirty per treatment session or something like that. Right. And I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. 
If you're going to work in this clinic as an independent contractor, you are setting your own rate. They don't get to say what you charge if you're an independent contractor. And my friend was like, oh, you're right. Well, I should get, yeah, it's my business. I should get to charge what I want, but it's a perfect example of how a clinic is running and there's therapists there thinking that they have to charge only what the clinic says they can charge, but they're independent contractors. And that is just a blatant like example of how that's an employee relationship. If they're telling you what to charge, that's an employee relationship. If you are renting space at a clinic as an independent contractor, and that would be a true independent contractor relationship, right? Like Mm -hmm. the clinic, maybe the owner of the clinic is renting space. Essentially they're a rental facility for therapists to offer their own services. And that's a clean kind of independent contractor probably maybe would even work in California if you've set up your business as a rental agency rather than a therapy clinic. But it's just an example. So I wanted to share that because it came to mind and I was like, hold on, you should, first of all, those rates are too low for where you are located. And also, (laughs) yeah, like you need to get to charge what you want to charge if you're an independent contractor. So I get um, really, really guarded with the whole independent contractor versus employee thing. I have someone that I do bookkeeping for who wanted to use QuickBooks timekeeping as a method of tracking the time for their independent contractors. And that just was a red flag enough to me. I'm like, I don't want you having independent contractors inputting time into your bookkeeping system Mm -hmm. because that just smells like an employee to me. No. Yeah. That's an employee, right? They should, an independent contractor should give you an invoice at the end of the month for what they did for you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think this is great. This could be its whole own episode on as we've been talking, I'm like, oh, we've got a long time. This is going to be a long episode. I'm okay to keep I have going. To break if- this up. <laughs> Can you? Well, no. I think you know what's I funny think- is actually I've found that the long episodes people don't care. Like they have just as much listen time as the. It's not like the shorter episodes get listened to more. And I think it's about the value of the information. I just want to check with you on time to make sure you're okay to stay ten I'm more good. minutes or so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Great. So let's let's talk about sales tax because that's another thing that I'm right now trying to sort out. And I know to be clear, Sandy does not do sales tax. This is something that she says is not <laughs> my area of expertise. I'm not going to go there because it is so, it's I, so I complex. Don't say complex because I have to work on this actually today. It's on my list. So let's talk about sales tax and maybe I can get pumped up to work on it. <laughs> okay. So the problem with sales tax is that there are 50 States and everyone has their own rules. It's, it's, it's a state tax and no, nobody is the same. So you really have to, again, my, my number one thing, I hope the number one takeaway you take from this podcast is that you need to get really friendly with your state's website Mm -hmm. so that you can learn what is required in your state for all levels of taxation. The starting place for sales tax is determining is what you're offering taxable in the majority of states services are not subject to sales tax. That's good news. Yeah. When you people running therapy practices. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Typically, especially for anyone with a professional license, those services are typically not subject to sales tax. But again, please do check your state because each one is different. Aside from checking your state, if you live in a major metropolitan area, also check to see if they may have their own. 
New York City is one that I recently became aware of because while New York State does not tax certain services, the city will. And one of the ones in particular is, I think it was for personal training. You've run into these situations where gym membership fees are taxable, but the services of the personal trainers may or may not be. And I remember specifically in New York City, yoga instructor is not subject to sales tax, but other health instruction type things are. It's very bizarre. So just as an example, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, there, the headline was yoga is not considered a health industry or something like that. <laughs> right, right, right. It was clickbait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the, the very first thing is determining, are your sales taxable? And that should be pretty simple to figure out by going to your state's website and just you know typing in exactly what you do. Is occupational therapy subject to sales tax in Wisconsin, for yeah, example? Yeah. Can I ask, and maybe you're about to go here, but I want to make a note for... I, what I see happening in, in the therapy industry in general is that a lot of practices have their in-person, well, it's like what I do. They, they have their in-person therapy practice, but then they also have digital products, online mm-hmm. services, like, and are, were you about to talk about this or should I? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So go on. No, we can <laughs> continue this so, conversation. Yeah. So you do, you have, you have what you do in person and then you have what you do online and are online sales subject to sales tax. And in most cases that I have seen, and again, I, I'm, I'm dealing with maybe at this point, probably 10 of the 50 states. So do check your state websites. But what I am seeing so far is that in general, online services are not taxable, but in some states, a digital product download would be subject to sales tax. So if you are offering a downloadable PDF or some sort of video recording or something like that, it's possible that that's going to be subject to sales tax. Yeah. So, and that's what we ran into with my business in Wisconsin and basically what, when I first looked at it again, you have to get comfortable with your state's website. You just, you just have to read it. It's going to be boring and hard, get a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or a kombucha or whatever your beverage of choices and just settle in with the tax website and read it. (laughs) Maybe some chocolate chip cookies, something to motivate you (laughs) to like sit in your computer and read the tax stuff. But basically the first time I looked at it, it looked as though oh my gosh, like I am, cause in California, no digital products are taxed for once. California was more affordable than Wisconsin because in Wisconsin, it appeared as though my online products were taxable. So my business has a group coaching program, a online course and some digital downloads, like digital products to support nature-based practitioners. And in further digging into the website, what I actually, and none of that in California was taxable. They, they were just anything online, digital goods, not taxable. And in California, it may be up to a certain amount of sales, which I was way underneath. So I can't, I can't remember. Maybe it's like $500,000 in sales or something. So the interesting thing that I just want to point out to share how things are different in different states is in Wisconsin, they actually only tax digital products that are standalone digital products. So as long as I 
keep my digital download products as part of a program that has some sort of asynchronous or synchronous live component to the product, then those are tax-free. You know, they're not, they're not taxed. They're not taxable sales. So that has influenced actually how I've made some decisions going forward in my business here, because the, the online income is all taxable in Wisconsin now, because that is Wisconsin based income that I am, because I'm pretty much the one doing, I mean, my, my, I have employees that are helping with some aspects of it, right. They're providing mentoring services or like sitting in on calls and providing feedback or like maybe helping me with some of the, the content creation, but like ultimately I'm the one managing the online business. So that business is all in Wisconsin and is Wisconsin generated revenue. So it's really interesting to think about how knowing the sales tax laws actually might influence how you design things in your business. Because for me right now, doesn't make sense really for me to do. We've launched those products twice and they've probably made the digital downloads. They've, I think they've made like a combined both launches, maybe 20 grand. So like when I think about 20 grand in my business, it's really not that much income. So putting those digital products into another product that then has that then has an, a synchronous component or some kind of live component so that it like it escapes the the sales tax is what I'm thinking about doing yeah because the it, it's not that much money it's it's really not that much sales tax I suppose we could still launch them and just report it and pay the sales tax but it's I think it's 5.5 percent is what is what we pay but it in Wisconsin but it's I don't know. It's It's just interesting. It's such a hassle Mm -hmm. for like a little amount of money. And it may as well just putting them into another product where I'm offering some coaching or there's maybe some video training or something that is like a course rather than a standalone digital download saves work in the business and just helps me not have to deal with sales tax. So one question I have about sales tax too is because I'm actually likely this year creating a membership site for nature-based therapists. And one question I had was, I think what gets confusing in my mind is, is sales tax paid where the business is located or is it paid where the customer is located? And, or is it both? And what is my responsibility? And do I have to register in a state as a business if I do a certain amount of business in that state and all of that? See where this gets confusing and scary? And you can see the huge grin on my face because I had written this down. (laughs) This is the part of it that is the absolute worst. And it's all the Wayfair company's fault. Up until a couple of years ago, you you remember you were buying things online and nobody was charging you sales tax. Now, no matter what you buy online, everybody's charging you sales tax. So there was this this old thing about you only had to pay tax on goods that were shipped for whatever. And now everybody had to get registered. It was Wayfair versus South Dakota. And basically South Dakota won and said, we get to tax all of your sales that are in this state. And by the way, if you ship into another state, then that state is going to want it too. So what now what you've got to do is look at where your customers are who are buying your products and look at that state as well and see, is my service taxable in that state? However, just like you said, most of the states have some sort of threshold and most of them are very high. Some of them will be 
you have to sell over $100,000 in that state or yeah. 100 transactions before you have to register. Others may be 200,000 and 200 transactions. The interesting thing is some states are and $100,000 and 100 transactions. Some are or 100,000 or 100 <laughs> oh transactions. Gosh. It's it's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. So it's mostly something to be aware of and just be aware of where your sales are coming from. I actually got a little bit nervous because I have a pretty big client base in California. And I thought I better start breaking this out and tracking where my clients are from and just yeah. seeing I am still well, and not that mine are subject to sales tax, but income tax is going to follow something similar as well. Yeah. This is a concept called nexus. Where is, what is your reach into another state? So um, I was looking at it from the income tax perspective because my services are typically not subject to sales tax, but it's the same thing. You've got to look for those thresholds and just see, you know, when is it going to apply to you? For most people who are making a six-figure income, this isn't going to be a big deal for you, but just be aware of what it is so that you can look at that threshold and go, okay, yeah, I'm nowhere near that. I'm good. Alternatively, yeah. if you do meet the threshold, it just means you have to register in that state for a sales tax seller's permit, whatever right. that particular state may call it, and then make sure that you are collecting that client's sales tax and remitting it to whatever state that is. Yes. So that is, so I, I'm about halfway through Tom Wheelwright's book, Tax-Free Wealth, which is a, I really, I got it on Kindle and it's a book that I'm going to need to just buy the physical copy because I, there's something about being able to write in it and like see yeah. it in context. Like I, I love Kindle because I can take it when I go backpacking or on an airplane and I can have 20 books with me in this small little thing, but I have multiple books that I have both Kindle copies and same. hard copies because there's just something about it's a reference book that business owners will want to cycle back to again and again. And one of the chapters that I finished when I was, gosh, I, I guess it was in December. I haven't circled back to it. This is a book that's going to take me a while to read. It's not kind of a sit down and read cover to cover book. One of the chapters that I recently read in there was about sales tax. And the, the, the thing I remember him saying is that it's like the number one thing that will that could put your business out of business. Like if you don't know about sales tax and you don't charge it and you're not aware of it and you're just letting it build up year after year and you have never charged sales tax on anything, technically states could come back to you or your state probably with the businesses that, you know, we're not dealing with on this podcast, I'm assuming people are like not like multi-million corporations doing worldwide business. Like yeah. usually these are small local businesses, practices, therapist business owners. But you know, if you have this back tax that you have to pay on sales tax, it really can be a hefty bill. And the sad thing is that he I remember so clearly he wrote about this. The sad thing is that it's something that the consumer is expected to pay, like they, we will pay it. Right. If you see, if you, when you're checking out and you see on Amazon, you have 7% sales tax or 9% sales tax, whatever it is, we all just kind of as consumers know that we need to pay that. Right. But you can't go back to those customers a year later and be like, right. Hey, oh. sorry, I forgot to charge you sales tax. And now I need to collect that from you. Cause the, the state came and knocked on my door for the exactly. money. So that's no, you've got to come up with that money. Yeah. You have to come up with that money in your business. And if you didn't charge the consumer for it at the time of the sale, you are 
not going to get that money. But it's, it wouldn't be unethical necessarily, but it's just really bad business practice you yeah. know, to go back to people and say, actually, you need to pay the $10 that was due on your $100 payment or whatever. And so for, for me, I actually ended up, that happened to me for a very small amount of money, right? But because we did a launch of those digital products in Wisconsin in November, we did like a little Black Friday sale of them and opened the cart for about a week, I think. And I didn't charge sales tax on those. So I had to pay Wisconsin, the sales tax on those, but I didn't charge my my customers that sales tax. So it was a tiny little lesson. It was like maybe a $200 lesson. It wasn't a lot, right? Not, Not even probably, but still it just, it's just a good lesson for people to know about. Do you, do you have any resources that you would recommend for navigating? Cause I truly do need to delve into this today to f- kind of figure out just with online business and with starting a membership that would be worldwide. It like n- sales tax makes me a little nervous to be honest, like mm-hmm. to, to be, I, I want people to know that if you're running an online business that is open to anyone in the world to purchase, you might, I mean, is it possible you could have sales tax liability in another country even? I tried looking that up before this just for fun and it's possible, but again, foreign countries seem, I, and to be fair, full disclosure, I only check Canada. I didn't check Europe, Sure. <laughs> um, but checking Canada, it was the same situation where you have to meet a certain dollar threshold before you even worry about it. And I want to say that was, a. I want to say, I mean, it wasn't extravagant. I want to say maybe it was 30,000. Okay. Something like that. I think it was, it was lower than the 200,000, but again, threshold to be met before that happens. When you say a threshold, like for, to establish a nexus in a state or in a province or a country, when we're talking about Canada, is that generally a per year amount or is it over all of time? Yes. It's generally a per year amount. Okay. Okay. Because I could see where once you you meet it, you're going to get registered and then you're registered. So if okay, you had okay. the, say you had the 200,000 in sales one year. And so you had to register there. And then, it, you know, it was, it was some huge launch that took off and it, everybody in California bought it. And then the next year you had $5,000 of sales there. You're still registered. So you still have to collect the tax, remit the reports. Even if you don't have anything in, in various quarters or whatnot, you have to file zero reports once you're registered. That's that's kind of the bad thing about it. And then eventually you look and say, okay, as have my sales fallen below this level? Can I be exempt and decide whether or not to close out your registration in that state? Okay. So, so <laughs> this is like, I'm laughing because I'm like, I'm imagining like this fake scenario where you could be like, oh, no more room for California people. Sorry. You know, (laughs) membership is close to California. I will have a nexus (laughs) there if I get one more. (laughs) So anyway, you just got to file if that happens, everyone. But okay. This was very enlightening. Thank you. I'm feeling it's like weird. I'm feeling overwhelmed, but encouraged at the same time. Like I have to get on this and figure this out before I really want to figure this out before I launch a membership because that is the membership that I'm thinking about launching is like a living and growing thing. Like it's not something that's going to open close the way my courses have in the past. And so Mm -hmm. I, I am nervous about that in general, like as a, as a business owner, it feels like the next logical step for me. And I feel like it will offer a really fabulous and valuable 
service to people to have this membership, but also it is, it's ongoing. It's, 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 it's not something that I can just hit stop on once I launch it, you know, (laughs) I guess I can, I mean, you can always, you can always end something, but it definitely feels like a shift of mindset to have like a community and a membership site that I would be feeding and growing and supporting and showing up for. And so it's, it's something that the sales tax piece is something that I wanted to just understand more before I launch it so that I'm not, so that my attention when I'm, when I, after I launch it is not being drawn away from the community to work on sales tax. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, you had asked for a resource company. There are a few companies out there, just like payroll companies. There are now companies that specialize in sales tax, probably the leader. And I'm not saying that as in they're, they're the best. I have no idea, but probably the name that is most familiar, certainly to accountants is Avalara. I just Googled it so I could spell it yeah. for you. A-V-A-L-A-R-A. And on their website, avalara.com, they've got a resources page and it, it has some good information on there, right? One yeah. of the first things that pops up is small business frequently asked questions. Yeah. So if you, and your five steps for managing sales tax. So without actually needing to sign up for their sale, for their product, which is they would calculate and remit sales tax for you. They do have some resources out there that might further your understanding. Yeah, that's great. I think I was on that site the other day because when you said there is one, and I was like, I wonder if it's that one that starts with an A that I was on the <laughs> other day. I couldn't remember the name. Yep. So it's A V as in Victor, right? Yes. A L E R A. A L A R A. A L A R A. So all A's, Avalara.com. Yes. And I, th- I think that was, if you type in sales tax help into Google, that's probably what will pop probably up. Probably where so, you're going to get to. Yeah. Um, thank you for that resource. That's what I, I was looking at that the other day, because when you said Nexus, I was like, I had seen that word. I saw that word on the website. Mm-hmm. So yay. Okay. What else? What else? Are we, are we almost done? Are we almost, almost done, done talking about taxes? <laughs> I think all that's left is income tax, which most people are already familiar with. And yes. the income beauty- tax of, you know, whether you're talking sole prop or LLC or S corp is that all of the taxes flow through to you at, onto your personal taxes. So an S corp is a pass through entity, which means it passes through all of its income and expenses to you as the owner. And then you're taxed at your personal income tax rates on that income. Which goes it tends to go up as your income goes up, right? Like your tax rate. Yes. Yes. So we have what's called a graduated tax system. So depending on your filing status, which is whether you're single, married, filing jointly, married, filing separately, all that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, (laughs) that the income tax brackets actually change. And I have, I have my handy cheat sheet here for everybody our rates are anywhere from 10% up to 37% for 2021. Most people, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that. Most people that I work with fall into the 22% bracket, which the top end of that is where your taxable income is about 173,000 a year. Now, taxable income of 173 is after you've taken off $25,000 for your standard deduction or Mm -hmm. more than that, if you itemize 
um, and any other things, half of self-employment tax. There's there's a bunch of different, you know, tax, child tax credits. There's yeah. a number of ways to reduce all of your income to get to that taxable income number. So that's why so many people fall into that 22% bracket. The 24% bracket goes up to $330,000 almost. So okay. that's where the majority, majority of my clients are going to be somewhere between that 22 and 24. Okay. And that's startups, just what you pay on your personal lower. taxes. Like, yeah. I'm learning. And again, I, this is like, I'm going to show how much I don't know by saying this, but I'm learning a lot about a lot of people know of Robert Kiyosaki's stuff, the rich dad, poor dad book. And he, he has a, he calls it the four quadrants. I can't remember what he calls it. It's like, he basically shows how, like, as an employee, you're going to pay a lot in taxes and you're going to pay a lot personally in your taxes and that you can move to paying less taxes when you are a business owner or an investor, because the tax laws in the United States actually want people to be entrepreneurs. There are lots of, there are lots of things in the laws, which give you the ability to pay less tax. If you are a business owner slash entrepreneur, because you're able to write off a lot of things in your business, right? Like you can write off the expenses of running your business. So right. it's just a, I, I, I mean, I know this is like a whole nother podcast episode, but like going down that, like really getting educated about your finances as a business owner. I think this was a fabulous 90 minute conversation about taxes and understanding all of the taxes in running a business. And there's even more education that you can do about how to set up your businesses in a way that allows you to maximize your tax savings, essentially. And I would recommend that people look into Robert Kiyosaki's stuff. Now he's really big into real estate. So if you're, I would say everyone should be open to investing in real estate, but <laughs> that's a whole nother topic. But, um, but a lot of what he says is like, you, you have to be willing to educate yourself. I mean, just at that base financial level, if you are not willing to educate yourself as an entrepreneur about finances, you're just not going to be able to run a successful business because you have to keep profit in the business and you have to know at least a, a basic understanding of your numbers so that you can continue to exist. You continue to, you can continue to sustain your business and go forward to help even more people and hopefully pay yourself more as the business goes on. So, right. Yeah. Right. And that doesn't have to be, you know, you can break that down to be not such an overwhelming task because people are listening and they're like, I can't even keep up on my business right now. How am I going to sit down right. when I, I'm going right. to fall asleep as soon as I start trying to learn this stuff? So I always encourage to, to and I, I know the first question is going to be, oh, which ones do you recommend? But I don't have them on the top of my head, but podcasts, podcasts are a great way to find out. I mean, anybody listening to this is already conditioned to listen yeah. to a podcast, to get information of this nature and on running your business, start to branch out in your searches for other information. Look for tax podcasts, look for yes. you know, any kind of, of business podcast. It's, it's been a great way for me. I have one specific to me that I listen to. It's called the cloud accounting podcast. It keeps me on top of all the new apps and things that are out there so that when someone comes to me and says, Hey, I want to use on pay for payroll, I can be like, Oh, I'm aware. And then I've yeah. heard good things about it, you know, that kind of thing. Can the way we consume information has just changed so much. And it yeah. doesn't have to be, you know, sitting down and trying to find time to to study this stuff. 
Right. Audiobooks. Audiobooks are great. And there's a bazillion business books out there and, and books on taxes and whatnot. So there's all kinds of resources. So again, just first stop your state's website, second stop, all the books, all the podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Robert Kiyosaki has a podcast. I think it's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He does talk a lot about real estate on that one, but also just basic financial understanding. And Tom Wheelwright has a podcast too, the tax-free wealth guy. And then there's probably a million others. Yeah. I can just imagine people after this podcast are going to be like going to their podcast app, typing in sales tax podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Fun, fun, everyone. (laughs) Okay. Sandy, I did not tell you the rapid fire questions that I ask everyone at the end. So Uh really quick, like just off the top of your head, this does not have to be like, you know, bear your soul to everyone, but there's three questions I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. And the first one is what has been your biggest fail learn as a business owner? So I call failures fail learns so that we remind ourselves that we learn from every failure. So what's been your biggest fail learn as a business owner and what can other people do to maybe avoid making the same fail learn? <laughs> yeah. So this one goes back a ways. So this is not my first time being an entrepreneur. I did the same thing a couple decades ago, back when I had to drive to clients to do their bookkeeping and pick up their tax documents. And there was barely an internet. So <laughs> I thought that I needed all of the things to run my business. I thought yes. I needed, because a lot of, you know, all of, nothing was pre- presented electronically. So I was giving client deliverables with the fancy covers on them and stuff like that. Yeah. And I invested in this huge ass color printer that back in the day was just way too much for me and way too expensive yeah. just because I wanted to have that professional appearance. And that that's just one of the things I can remember off the top of my head. And when I ended up moving and not having grown that business to the point where it was a sellable asset and I changed locations, I walked away from that business and decided to go be an employee again because Back in the day, that was a it was a really hard road to hoe to go around and and do all of this stuff live with paper and yeah, blah. it was awful. So I went back and and I, I rejoined a firm, walking away from that sole proprietorship with the amount of credit card debt that I did because I had to have all of the things and I didn't take the time to figure out how many clients is this going to take. To pay for this. Yes. What is, you know, what's it doing that cash flow budget? Cash flow is king. You will never get to a point where your business is so big that you can ignore the cash flow. <laughs> so that's, that is, that is it. And I am, I could not be more proud of myself for where I am today and where I have grown my business from July of last year until now. And pausing and making those decisions because it's, it's, it's still expensive to be an accountant. We've got our tax research software on top of our tax software Yeah, on top of our bookkeeping software. Uh, everything just adds up just like it does for you guys. I mean, I'm not saying I'm special. I know it's the same for everybody. Yeah. All of the little things add up and taking the time to sit down and look at your cash flow and figure out what it means before you actually pull the trigger on something is just an invaluable lesson. Yeah. And you kind of, it's interesting. You kind of answered the second question that I was going to ask, which is to end on a positive note is I always ask people what's going so well right now in your business and how, what would you recommend to others to have that same success? 
Yeah. So definitely being on top of cash flow is, is number one. I cannot stress the importance of getting your systems in place while you're still small. I thought mine were, and they're not bad. I'm not yeah. drowning over here, but my systems are stressed enough. I'm stressed enough that I can see the need to get better systems in place right now before I grow any further. And that's part of my waitlisting for income taxes. I do outsource bookkeeping and tax as a roll together package for most of my clients where they pay yep. a, a flat monthly fee. On top of that, I will take on a select few just income tax clients. I don't like to take on a ton of those because those typically come to me with a spreadsheet or scanned receipts or something. I never know what I'm opening myself up to. And they yeah. take a lot of time to do. So I've waitlisted that while I see if, you know, maybe I can get through all of this by say March 15th. I don't really know. I don't know how long it's yeah. going to take me. So if I get to March 15th and I can open up more spots, I will gladly do that. Anybody who wants to go on extension and not file at April 15th, I can take them in. Right, but right. I've just, I'm, I'm just pumping the brakes right now while I figure out what is my system to make sure that I get everything done to the point where I've got different clients. You know, I've got my task list of what I have to do. And yeah. I was driving myself so crazy in my head. I actually opened up a Google calendar that's not connected to anything and just started assigning people to days so that I know yeah. that okay, your tax calendar. I've, yes. I'm like, I've got this covered. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, I just realized, I mean, I've even, just as you've been talking, I just realized that this is I should be even more thankful that you're making time to do this for our community here, because this is your most busy time of year, like starting January 1st until April, May, June, even is January the is first half month. of the year. Yeah. It's a tough month. So you've given <laughs> us an hour and 40 minutes of your time and I don't pay people to be on the podcast. So, you know, I'm hoping that you will get business from this because people will see how great you are and tell people that tell people where they can find you online. So fit money coach on Instagram. Do you, do you yep. hang out anywhere else online or is it mostly fit money coach? It's just fit money coach on Instagram. That's where I started. And that's, you know, I, I try to post, <laughs> I'll, I'll get going good for a, for a couple of weeks and then you'll see me disappear because, you know, life is busy happening over here. Yeah. So uh, I was one of the last four people in the country, the world, I don't know, to ever get reels. Reels was like a thing for over a year. Has it been out a year? I don't know. Seems like forever. It's been available for you forever. And I just got it like last month. Oh so my I'm just gosh. Figuring out how to do reels. Even watching people's reels. I couldn't do it unless they posted it to their feed. So oh, that's lost so interesting. Lost a day the first day I had it because I had to watch all the dog reels. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, that, I love your reels. I think your reels are so great. And I, I love like their reels about finances. When I've posted reels about finances, because I tend to on my account post about marketing, sales, operations, systems, finances, and mindset. Those are like my topics, my content pillars, if you will. I have no system in place. I just post when I feel like it. But like, I think that there is a real, real, no pun intended, <laughs> interest on Instagram in financial education in a fun and educating way. Yeah. And the the reels that I post on finances tend to be very well. They're, they're like the ones that have the most views. And it's just, it's evidence of how I've said this before on the podcast and I'll say it again. There are some niches that are going to grow more quickly than other niches because they are meeting a felt need that a large number of people have. So even if you're an accountant for 
fitness and wellness and healthcare professionals, if you're sharing financial information that is helpful to everyone, your account might like really grow quickly because people are very in need of financial literacy. Like they need to understand Mm -hmm. their finances. And so I think your reels are meeting a huge need, not just for your ideal client, but for lots of other business owners, any business owner really. So keep them up. They're, They're so fun to watch. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was so helpful. I would say this is probably one of the most jam packed with value and helpful content episodes ever. And you're only like the third person I've brought on the podcast. Who's not an OT. So (laughs) I appreciate you making time, Sandy. Thank you. Oh, it was my pleasure. I I actually do love talking about this stuff. Um, I love you. You're so easy to talk to and you are so you, you don't give yourself enough credit. You are further along on your finance game than you give yourself credit for. So, oh, well, well, thank you for that because I, uh, <laughs> I feel like I know, like I'm coming along. I feel like it's taken, I'm what, six years into business now. So I feel like I've, I feel like, you know, it's just a journey. And that is, that yeah. is what I, what I tell people all the time. In fact, I end the podcast every time I, I end the podcast, I say small steps, make great gains over time. Like that's, yes, that's my motto really. So yes, take those small steps, everyone, because small steps make great gains over time. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks, Andy. (laughs) Thank you. So that was the most fun conversation I've ever had about taxes. And also It went a little longer than I anticipated, but it is illustrative of the fact that taxes are a complex subject and that business ownership and entrepreneurship is a lifelong learning process. There is always going to be more to learn as you run your businesses. I've been running my business for six years now, and I just now feel like I'm getting more of a handle on taxes. And I love Sandy's approach. Don't freak out about it. Don't stay up late at night worrying about it. Just do your due diligence. Have someone help you and know that it is not the end of the world. (laughs) You can do this. You can pay the taxes your business needs to pay. Stay out of trouble with whatever government you live under and run your business in a way that is free and joyful and just get those taxes done and move on with the more fun stuff in business. So (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned a lot and reach out to me on Instagram if it helped you. I love to hear from listeners on Instagram. I'm at Laura Park Fig. Didn't want anyone to have to try to spell Figueroa. It has all the vowels, just not in order. Anyway, the very last thing that I want to share with you, if you have not heard, is that The Contigo Approach online course, which is the nature-based approach to pediatric therapy that I developed, is now open for enrollment. Now, we have a free masterclass for anyone who is interested in nature-based practice. It is called the Five-Step Framework to Be an Effective and Confident Nature-Based Pediatric Therapist. That masterclass is about an hour long. It is totally free. It gives you a ton of resources to get started on the adventure of nature-based therapy or to deepen your nature-based therapy work if you're already working outdoors. In that masterclass, you have the opportunity to enroll in the Contigo Approach online course, but it's totally optional. And one of the reasons I love this format of selling is because the masterclass actually gives people so much useful information and 
you don't have to pay for it. It's totally free. And then if you want to go deeper with that information, you can enroll in the course. So if you are interested in that, go to naturemasterclass.com and enroll. And that's it. That is all I have to say for this episode. I hope it was helpful to you. And I will see you all next time. Take a small step because small steps make great gains over time. So until next time, mind your OT business.